Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Paul Pope. I'm the uh, CIA's officer in residence here um, at the LBJ School. Um, I've been doing that just for a, uh, for a month or so. And I'm honored to be chairing this uh, second panel in this conference. Uh, it's the, the last night and today uh, have been so good that we're actually worried about what we're going to say. <laughs> but I think, I think there's a lot more to talk about. Uh, we've really enjoyed the, the, the comments to date, and I think you'll, uh, I think you'll, you'll enjoy the, those of this illustrious and distinguished panel that I have uh, beside me. Let me take a moment to introduce them in a minute, but just to say in terms of uh, how we're going to run the panel, it's going to be a little bit different. I'll introduce them briefly, and then each of them will be given the opportunity to make a few statements. They all have a unique perspective, both from at the time of uh, the Reform Act and since, that I think you'll find uh, uh, very useful to the, the topic we have in hand about being uh, safer and smarter. And then um, we will uh, break for lunch. So we're standing between you and lunch, and so I'm going to try to keep us on time, uh, and we'll have plenty of time for questions at the end. Uh, let me start by introducing uh, Steve Slick on my far right. Steve was a member of uh, CIA's clandestine service, as was I. Um, he's had a long and distinguished career overseas. I'm in a position, Steve, to say that uh, I know that some of your greatest contributions to national security are not in your bio. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but he's had some pretty su substantial contributions to national security that are in the bio including um, serving as a senior director for intelligence programs with the addendum and reform uh, at the time that um, this act was passed uh, and was involved in a number of other initiatives associated with intelligence reform, 9-11 commission, et cetera, uh, in the wake of 9-11. I'd also add that um, Steve is a, uh, is an, was an attorney and is an attorney before he came to the agency, and so that gives him a, a somewhat unique perspective. I'll also say, Steve, you've done a good job of maintaining a low profile. I Googled you. It turns out there's a really good band in Italy called Steve Slick and the Gangsters, but there's very, <laughs> there's, there's very little about you in there, so good job on that. Just living my cover. I <laughs> know. Good work. You did a good job. Dr. Stephen Cambone um, has had a distinguished career in government, the private sector, our national labs as a consultant, a board member, and in academia. Um, he served as the first Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and led the development of the 2001 Defense Quadrennial Review. He will have very unique perspectives on this, and I also um, believe he has a lot to say about uh, other reforms and initiatives that are underway at the time that are relevant. And so um, look forward to hearing you from, from on that. I just met Lieutenant General Retired Frank Kisner. He's, he was most recently a NATO Special Operations Commander. And he will be here today representing sort of the operators, uh, military operator, and particularly special operations point of view on intelligence reform. Um, I uh, noted in your bio that while you're from Nebraska, you had the good sense to marry a Texas girl. And uh, so I'm going to give you credit for getting here as fast as you could. Um, and then we have, uh, we will conclude our, our, the, the formal comments with uh, Jim Langdon, who was formerly the chair of the President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board during the period of discussion when the, when the act was passed and uh, remained in national security affairs since. He is an expert on energy associated regulatory issues and geopolitical issues associated with energy. So with that, 
Um, let me immediately turn it over to Steve for a few comments. Great. Well, thank you, Paul. It's a, a pleasure to be here at the University of Texas, and I, I greatly appreciate the warm welcome and uh, special thanks to the LBJ School, the Clements Center, and the Strauss Center for the uh, opportunity for me to continue to remain engaged on these issues uh, starting next January. Um, it was my uh, uh, great privilege in 2004 when many of the decisions that we're talking about today were made uh, to serve on the uh, staff of the National Security Council uh, as a uh, director and later senior director for intelligence programs. And um, uh, I must say at the outset that um, there were just two points that I wanted to make concerning intelligence reform to kick off the discussion, but they were just made uh, by the last panel uh, more eloquently and more authoritatively. Uh, than I could presume to do. So I'll just repeat those very briefly and then move quickly on to your questions uh, and also the comments by my uh, fellow panelists. Um, working backwards from uh, my judgment on the theme of the conference, which is are we, uh, are we smarter, are we safer? In other words, is our intelligence community functioning better, more effectively uh, in the 10 years since the passage of the IRTPA and the attendant uh, uh, executive uh, orders, and my answer to that is yes. Uh, I believed in 2004 uh, and believe today uh, that our intelligence community is, is more effective, more capable of producing uh, timely, insightful, accurate intelligence uh, than it was 10 years ago. And the principal reason, and I'll explain with a vignette uh, why I feel this way, uh, why I feel that the intelligence community functions better uh, under the strong central leadership of an individual who's not also uh, the director of the Central Intelligence Agency was the point that uh, Jim Clapper and Mike McConnell made earlier about strategic resource decisions. And so we're all shaped by our individual experiences and perspectives. Uh, before I went to the National Security Council staff, I had the, the great privilege of being an executive assistant, a, a staff member, uh, working for John McLaughlin, uh, who's here in our audience as the uh, Deputy Director of Central Intelligence. And um, so I worked for John and George Tenet by extension for uh, almost three years, beginning the week before 9-11 attacks. And um, what I witnessed there was absolutely extraordinary, and there'll be several others who can testify to it, not only John uh, himself, but uh, Scott White and a few others who had the privilege of working uh, with that leadership team at CIA in uh, 2001, 2002, and 2003. And uh, to be brief about describing what we witnessed, uh, Director Tenet, who was the DCI at the time, uh, was an extraordinary leader, uh, creative, energetic, uh, inspirational. And we had the opportunity to witness that, those of us on his staff, uh, every evening at 5 o'clock uh, at the infamous 5 o'clock meetings in the director's conference room at CIA, where Director Tenet and Deputy Director McLaughlin were, were literally, from a tactical standpoint, leading the war on terrorism, the response to the 9-11 tax, the, uh, uh, putting CIA people on the ground within two weeks of the attacks in Afghanistan uh, to begin mounting America's response. And, and that was... Uh, a sight to behold. Um, these were extraordinary leaders leading a committed agency, making courageous decisions uh, every day. 
and uh, all through the night in most instances. So what I witnessed was the extraordinary leadership that these two people, probably the finest uh, combination of leaders CIA has ever had, at least in my career, uh, leading a very important agency in the war on terrorism. Um, and that was an education uh, to be even a small part of for several years. But what I didn't see happen while I was there was a great deal of effort or uh, deliberation or um, programmatic uh, attention paid to leadership of the intelligence community as a whole. Now, these were clearly responsibilities assigned to the director of central intelligence. But because of the day-to-day demands of running the CIA in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, and probably also some sense of the limitations of uh, authorities and the, uh, the uh, less responsive character uh, that they were likely to encounter for direction to the intelligence community, uh, there was relatively less attention paid to leading the community. And so I was always very concerned from that point forward uh, that we should have a central single leader uh, for the intelligence community, not also serving as the director of CIA, And somebody would have the ability to make these strategic resource decisions that General Clapper described earlier, decisions that are necessary but maybe weren't made uh, particularly decisively or consequentially beforehand. That means trade-offs. For example, if there's a billion dollars of discretionary spending available in the intelligence budget, uh, where should that money be spent? Which agency, which intelligence discipline? Should we be buying more case officers, more human intelligence capability? Should we be investing in another satellite? Should we be getting ahead of changes in the SIGINT environment? Should we be investing in early cyber uh, operations? These were decisions that uh, I was concerned weren't necessarily being made uh, under the old structure, and I thought they needed to be made by a single person who could assess the threat environment facing the United States uh, and make um, hard choices, very difficult choices between intelligence disciplines and agencies. Uh, And as General Clapper described, that's even more important in a declining resource environment when you have to take money away uh, from agencies and missions, uh, each of whom have a constituency, have a following, and have uh, uh, have a contribution to make to the intelligence enterprise Uh, But the world changes, and the intelligence community has to change with it to ensure we're getting the the best information to the president. So that's what I was looking for uh, then and looking for now in centralized intelligence leadership with somebody to make difficult resource choices. And as the previous panel indicated, if that same person is also the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, an advocate for the human intelligence mission, uh, it's... um, Uh, less possible for them to make those decisions, less possible for them to defend and execute those decisions to other members of the community. So that was the the reason why I supported uh, most strongly the the creation of a DNI and a a strong central leader for the intelligence community. Uh, The changes that we're discussing uh, at this conference are, in my view, uh, generational, long-term, and largely cultural. And so I would highlight a point that both Director McConnell and Director Clapper made uh, about the cultural change that has to happen and how to stimulate that. Now, the 9-11 Commission, 
the members of Congress who drafted the IRTPA devoted a great deal of attention to study of the Goldwater Nichols, the 1986 Defense Reorganization Act, in particular focusing on the development of joint officers and the mandatory requirement that officers serve outside their service to be eligible for promotion. Well, this was an innovation uh, that was introduced in the law uh, to the intelligence community and, in my view, is uh, vitally important and essential every day. You heard General Clapper uh, express his support for uh, the joint duty. But what I wanted to bring home to you, uh, and we could have asked David Shedd and and others about, is um, the difficult day-to-day decisions that imposes on the leader of an intelligence agency. So you have a large set of mission responsibilities uh, that you need to accomplish. You have a limited number of people uh, to perform that mission, and you have even a smaller number of highly capable, highly productive people. And you're asked on a regular basis to release those people for a year or two years and go serve in another agency, in another building, uh, and gain the experience of working in another culture, learning about another intelligence discipline, develop special relationships that you know will be important later in their careers, but for today, that's somebody you don't have working for you. You don't have writing memos. You don't have preparing briefing points. And at the same time, you're also asked to bring in a large number of people from other agencies who have to be trained and inculcated in your culture, learn how to function and be productive in your system, and that's also uh, a drain on your current mission uh, capabilities. And so uh, while it's painful uh, for the leaders of today's intelligence community to fully support joint duty assignments and that kind of cultural change I'm describing, it is absolutely essential And it's the only way we're going to build the kind of uh, leadership cadre that we're going to need in future years to truly lead an integrated, collaborative uh, intelligence enterprise. And so not that he needs my advice, but uh, I've discussed this extensively with General Clapper uh, and with uh, Mike McConnell before him. Um, In this operations officer's perspective, Uh, That is the key to success or failure uh, of this intelligence reform experiment, is whether we we build a generation of officers who think collaboratively, want to be part of an integrated community, have some sympathy and appreciation for the work of their colleagues uh, in other agencies, and that will make all the difference in our effectiveness going forward. And, um, And that requires them to be very strict because agency heads will frequently come to them ask for exceptions. They'll want high-performing officers in key jobs to get a waiver so that they don't have to go uh, serve outside the building. And the answer, it seems to me, is uh, no exceptions, strict rules, strict adherence. Um, It's the fastest way to an integrated workforce, in my view. So uh, with that, I'll close and look forward to your questions. Thank you, Steve. Good morning, everyone. I wanted to uh, to express my appreciation to uh, to the centers here at uh, the university to the university for inviting me and and in fact holding this conference because it's it's an important subject and one that uh, I think uh, we will recur to periodically. Um, I I was in a conversation uh, yesterday with someone about uh, resetting organizations and I reminded that the Department of Defense has been reset four or five times. 
uh, in the course of its career. Um, in fact, it was reset twice, I think, inside the first 10 years. Um, so making changes in large organizations in complex environments is not an unusual thing and not something that we ought to shy away from uh, as time goes on. Second, I'll, I'll remind all of you that I am not an intelligence officer. Um, uh, many of the people here uh, are, uh, and I have had the privilege of, of working with them in the course of my time associated with the intelligence community. Um, I was, as was said, the, the first under for intelligence, the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. Um, and, and that post was established, uh, or I took that office in, in March of 2003, so roughly, um, uh, what, 16, 18 months before the DNI stood up. Um, and we had, uh, under the Secretary of Defense, Don Rumsfeld, uh, begun to make a number of adjustments in the way that the department went about doing its business. Uh, because the Secretary came in uh, persuaded that intelligence was going to be absolutely essential to the success uh, of the administration going forward. There, there was no question in his mind that absent uh, a well-oiled uh, intelligence capability, uh, he couldn't do his job, he couldn't serve the president, uh, and therefore he thought it was absolutely essential to get his arms around uh, the intelligence uh, business inside the department. But he also knew, uh, having had the experience of being secretary during the uh, Church Pike years, that he couldn't both run the entire department and deal with the issues of intelligence without there being someone in the department uh, who had responsibility for authority, direction, and control over those elements of the department uh, that were uh, his statutory uh, obligation to lead uh, and his obligation to uh, be certain that they were in uh, direct and constant support of the, of the then DCI. Um, so a side note on authority, direction, and control, if you look at the memorandum that he signed out uh, assigning authority, direction, and control to the Undersecretary for Intelligence, you'll discover that there's a caveat in there, and the caveat is those things he decides is, are to be delegated, the USDI will have authority, direction, and control under. It wasn't a blanket um, uh, delegation. And that was, there was a reason for that. Uh, he and George Tennant had a very long conversation uh, about what the relationship should be and ought to be between the DCI and the broader intelligence community and the Department of Defense. And they were of one mind uh, that that relationship had to be uh, unified. That, that there couldn't be daylight between the Secretary of Defense and the DCI. And if the DCI was uncomfortable with a blanket uh, delegation, which if you look at the uh, charters for the other undersecretaries is a blanket, all matters having to do with PNR, for example, are dealt with by the, by the uh, personnel and uh, readiness people. Um, if, if George was uncomfortable, the DCI was uncomfortable with that, then the Secretary was prepared to make that adjustment to be certain that there was never going to be daylight there. Now, George, for his part, um, understood that, and he had opposed that precise language earlier uh, in the context of the uh, CQDI, uh, the, the Command Control Communications and Intelligence Assistant Secretary. Um, but in light of the, the Secretary's belief that he, the Secretary, needed to get his arms, his, the Secretary's arms, around the intelligence enterprise in the department, uh, George was willing to, to see if that could be made to work. 
so th that was a deal the two of them struck uh, to try to make certain that the uh, interface between the two organizations was, uh, was properly drawn. That paid dividends, uh, that their interest in, in that tightness, um, as early as the uh, run-up to the 2009-11, uh, uh, where they spent an awful lot of time together. But, but it was really uh, brought to the fore uh, when uh, the Secretary assigned uh, U.S. Special Operations Forces uh, under his authority in Title 10 to uh, the DCI under Title 50 for execution and operations in Afghanistan. So all those fellows riding on horseback uh, that were, were all part of the movies and all the rest of it, right, um, were actually the first time uh, after 9-11 uh, that U.S. military forces had been actually assigned uh, for operational direction uh, by the, uh, the DCI and the, and the folks in the field. So he understood what that was about and, and was, was ready and prepared to, to make those kinds of adjustments as time went on. He was urged, for example, to invoke uh, the executive order that uh, chops the CIA to the Secretary of Defense in time of war, uh, and he refused to do it. He, he said, why, why would we do that? <laughs> we have a perfect arrangement here where, where we can assign capability to each of the two operating entities of, uh, of the national security apparatus abroad, uh, and why would we want to change that? Uh, we have it right where we want it, and, uh, and uh, let's leave it alone. So that was on the operational side. Let me say a word about how we thought about the intelligence uh, from the point of view of the enterprise of the Department of Defense. And, and I want to call your attention to uh, not so much where we were or even how we got here or, or how good we are today. I'll stipulate we're better today than we were. Um, details uh, to the side, uh, we can stipulate that. I think what we want to start asking ourselves is, so what are we going to expect the DNI uh, in, in cooperation with the other elements of the, uh, the President's Cabinet to be able to deliver uh, as we go forward in time? And, and it seems to me we can, we can talk about the role for intelligence as having five purposes from the point of view of, uh, of a Secretary of Defense or any other Cabinet head, and that's to assess the circumstances of the world and whatever that world is. Uh, to warn, we talked about that this morning, uh, they're going to act, that is, particularly under covert action authorities. Uh, they will undertake certain actions that uh, would not otherwise be permitted. Uh, they're going to lend support. Uh, so the uh, David's point about uh, the number of DIA people who are in the field uh, with the operating forces. Um, I can't tell you, because I can't, uh, how many CIA officers we had in direct support of military operations uh, during the course of both Iraq and Afghanistan. And it, they were legion. And last safeguard, Jim talked about that yesterday, the counterintelligence work that they have to do uh, to, pre to protect our own secrets and our own people from other folks who want to steal them, right, because they're out there doing the same thing we're trying to do. So if you look out into the world we're going into, it seems to me that we, we can make a handful of assumptions. First, the uh, whole-of-government approach that has been generating over the past 10 years or so will continue to evolve, and we will continue to try to deal with uh, the set of circumstances we find in the world uh, using that approach, and the department will continue to provide a framework around which those operations take place. Why? We have our own airplanes, we have our own ships, we have our own hospitals, we have our own people, we have our own communications. We can do that. We can, we can do that kind of support function 
uh, in the Department of Defense listened to me like I was still there. The, it can do those things uh, in ways that no other organization can. But the United States is going to continue to deploy its forces on a global scale uh, as part of that uh, whole-of-government approach, looking to sustain a, a stable international order and one friendly to, to ourselves and to those who are friendly to us. But we're going to have a much smaller force to do it with, nearly by definition. Even if we stem now the, the, uh, the, the decline in budgets, the force is going to be, to be smaller. And therefore, it is not going to be as, in my opinion, as dissuading as it might have been in the past, and its deterrent effect will be diminished in proportion to its size being reduced because it won't be present and can't be present in the way that it has been in the past. And the whole-of-government approach, in the end, will not substitute for the presence of U.S. military capability as a deterring capability deployed forward. Another assumption, there's going to be a variability in the speed in which an event turns into a crisis. Uh, some are going to just overnight, and, and we're going to be in the middle of it. So the example from the point of view of the Japanese with the problem around the globe, we, we face the same problem here every day. Uh, and, and so being able to anticipate how those crises are going to unfold and, and the way in which they are going to unfold in this globalized environment becomes absolutely essential. And, and, and therefore, there is a concern that as you try to manage these crises, what's going to be the effect of trying to apply the force? Because it's going to be farther away. It's going to take longer to get there. It's going to be smaller in size. And if you're going to try to deploy, employ it decisively, you are going to radically change the circumstances. Uh, Admiral McRaven talked about this yesterday, right? Uh, why is the Special Forces uh, contingent uh, a useful force? Well, it, it's smaller, very effective, but if you think you're going to have to apply uh, uh, decisive force, you're going to change the nature of the environment, and you may actually be uh, causing an escalatory cycle to begin to take place. So you've got to think about that as you start to adjust the way in which you're going to look at the world. So what do you want your, the intelligence folks to do for you? And it seems to me there's a handful there, and we can put them under each of the headings. You need to look at the networks that are being formed out there. The world is a networked place, and it works on networks. Um, we, we have to have some sense of those emergent sources of disruption and dislocation that are taking place here. Jim made mention of food and and water and things like that. There are countless things now that can cause those incidents to become crises that lead to, to difficulties. You'd like to have your intelligence community help you with what the department calls its phase zero operations or the whole of government uh, phase zero operations. What are those? those are the things where you try to nip things before they happen. Right? And, and that means you need to have people out there, both on the civilian side and the military side, who have a sense of what's happening and what could be done to nip things in advance. Warning. Um, breakout capabilities of any kind um, that might somehow or another upset the ability that we might uh, have, in fact, to employ force. Um, because what you don't want is a mismatch between what's taking place locally and the force that you're going to bring to the fight, which means you need some help in, in, from the intelligence community informing your force. Right? What, what kind of force are you going to be looking for? It, that, that's not independent of, what, um, of what's taking place out there in the world. Um, act. Uh, we, I mentioned the covert action, but um, but we also have to get better at incorporating DOD entities and other elements of the government into 
the intelligence community framework. So it's not just enough to have it always flowing to the DOD side of the house. We've got to figure out a way to flow it to the other side of the house in a way that is, is seamless. Um, support. And, and here's a big one, I think. If, in fact, the force is going to be smaller and there's going to be an inclination to deploy smaller units, um, they're not going to come with a brigade headquarters. They're not going to have 500 people sitting in the back office, right, in theater, uh, running the radios and doing all the rest of that. So this is not going to happen. They're going to be in much smaller teams, uh, call them 100 for the sake of the argument, and they're going to need all of exactly the same support that that brigade combat team gets today. They're still going to need it, and we're going to have to figure out how to do it uh, in a way that satisfies the need. So when we talk about eyesight as a backbone for the domestic enterprise, what's its equivalent for that smaller force? Again, it's going to be civilian and military both. What's it going to look like? So those are the sorts of things that as you start looking out and you start making some assumptions about the future and you ask yourself, what do you want your, your DNI to start to evolve to be able to provide to the president, to the Secretary of Defense, and to the other agency heads? Those are the sorts of things that at least that have been running around the back of my head that, that give me pause. Thank you, Stephen. That's um, some of those issues I, would, I definitely want to come back to as we, uh, as we move forward. Great. Well, this is a pleasure uh, for me to be here, and I had the opportunity to attend last year's session as we looked at the NSA, and it absolutely has gotten bigger. The uh, audience has gotten larger, and I think that that's an incredible testimony to what the University of Texas is doing here. And I am glad that I married into Texas and uh, can be here as a part of this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a different perspective, if you will, and look at the tactical level and what I saw in the various roles that I played uh, up until 2013 and try to walk you through what I saw done right and, and really to hit on comments that have already been made of recommendations for the future. In 2001, um, I think everybody here will remember where they were. On the 22nd of September, I took elements of my special operations group and we started heading east. Um, and we left then because, first of all, it takes a long time in C-130s uh, and helicopters to get uh, over to the fight. Um, but we knew that we needed to be in place to respond because America required that response, and quite honestly, as Americans, we wanted to deliver that response. But that really meant it was a come-as-you-are party. Um, the tactics that we already had in place, the training that we already accomplished, and quite honestly, the relationships that had already been built were going to be the framework of the foundation for the, um, the success that was achieved. Now, I will tell you that, um, and I was teamed up uh, ultimately as uh, John Mulholland's deputy commander for a Task Force Dagger uh, North, putting in those guys on the horseback and, uh, and supporting them. Um, and there's a couple of reasons why that succeeded uh, so well. Number one is that members of the agency visited John at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, before he deployed, and they did so because they knew it was going to be that fight together. Um, and so that relationship was already being built that would be uh, grown and fostered on the battlefield. Number two, and I don't know who to thank for this, but I really would like to, um, is there was a push of capability forward. We had a national intelligence support team that showed up. I, I didn't even know what a NIST was, but these guys get off this plane, guys and girls, by the way, get off this plane. They said, we can provide a capability to you that we may not be able to tell you about, but we need to listen into all the things you're going to do as a plan, need to listen to the concerns, need to listen into what your intelligence needs are, and we'll get you answers where we can, and, and it worked tremendously. 
And the other reason that it worked is because we were paired at that forward operating location right there with the agency. And everything that was going on was was hand-in-hand, uh, hand. Um, mutually supportive, um, everything from including where we would put in resupply drops um, to certainly who you would be teamed up, uh, what warlords would you go into uh, and serve with, and, and how were they vetted, and how did it all work. Uh, so it worked tremendously well. And then I found myself about a year later uh, in the operational planning for Operation uh, Iraqi Freedom. And what was interesting is that I was at a higher level. I was at uh, I was Gary Harrell's uh, Joint Special Operations Combined, Joint Special Operations Air Component Commander, and, and we had actually responsibility for Iraq and Afghanistan operations. And at his higher level, uh, I had less access. Um, we didn't have those teams in place because the fight got larger, and there were those limited resources, and they just couldn't go down to that task force level that I had experienced before. That, um, th that creates a problem, and we have talked about the resources that we need. And so you, as you look at the resources, um, and that is time, energy, money, but most importantly, the people that are going to be employed, uh, echo what uh, Steve said, you've got to have those teams that are out there, you've got to have those relationships that are built, and you've got to be able to fight. A couple of years later, I find myself in the NATO environment, and what we're looking at is... Um, the question of what do you need? So when I went in as the first director, uh, or first as the director, following uh, Admiral McRaven as the director of the NATO Special Operations Coordination Center, and then we evolved that into the NATO uh, Special Operations Headquarters, the question from those commanders, and ultimately we grew it to 26 NATO allies, and three close non-NATO allies were present there, and an enduring presence from Australia and New Zealand because they're with us in the fight all the time. The first thing that they said is that we need access to intelligence. We need the good stuff. Everybody turned around and believed, justifiably so, that the United States has the good stuff. Well, we sat down in very hard discussions with them across the table and said, this has got to be a two-way street. We can work on getting greater access to intelligence that the United States has, and those myriad of intelligence agencies are out there, but there's got to be a return on that investment. And even though you may not have those technical means, you've got those human resources that are out there, and you are in places where we may not be operating, so this has got to be a two-way street um, that is formed. I would tell you we received tremendous support from the intelligence community writ large, um, and for breaking down barriers and doing things that we had not really done before. Uh, one of the things, and you heard reference uh, before to these fusion cells that started to be generated, we took the best practices of the United States and in 2008 built a soft fusion cell in Afghanistan in support of the uh, 10 coalition uh, task forces that are out there with special operations capability, our NATO allies who are there. In order to do so, we had to break down some barriers. And one of those things is really a foundation that Director Clapper talked about. The United States supported an entity being established uh, called the Battlefield Intelligence Collection and Exploitation System, BICES. That gave us that common framework, that common IT framework, where underneath NATO protocols, NATO secret standards, we could share information across the board Pre-deployment training, we took a capability and we pushed BICES forward, so we had that employment operations, and we had that 
post-deployment lessons learned. When we brought forces into the NATO Special Operations Headquarters to prepare them for that pre-deployment, we did so on the BICES network. They could build target packages before they deployed that then they had access to when they did deploy. They could build that situational awareness, and they could, in fact, then execute on this common framework, something that is important right now for out-of-area operations from NATO's perspective in Afghanistan. But as you look at operations into Africa, we use that same BICES framework, and it provided that common intelligence-driven uh, IT infrastructure, and it was tremendous. There are other best practices that we took, and most of all, it was the willingness of the intelligence community writ large to share what had been learned and with special operations forces to look at what they'd learned. And we started to transition. We started to transition to evidence-based operations because it is a complex, messy fight, and there is a lot of law enforcement that goes on. And I, I will do a disservice because I won't talk about everybody who is involved. Absolutely state with their country teams. Uh, were there in those various operations. We had Justice. We had Treasury that does that foreign uh, threat uh, financing uh, aspect, and they look at that, and they, and they track it down, they break it down. FBI was able to tell us what they could tell us, what they couldn't tell us, and why, and to take information that came off an objective and then to be able to use it in that law enforcement role. Um, and, and then everyone said, gosh, you know, we need to take it to that next level. If we're going to have law enforcement-like actions on the objective, we need to train you up to that. So we received that support for training that we conducted. I turned around and you looked at training in biometrics and to be able to take that data and put it into a user-friendly database that was controlled within law enforcement protocols so that we didn't cross over any boundaries. We turned around and we learned about actions on the objective to ensure that we had chain of custody, chain of evidence, when something was taken. We took pictures there. We exploited the media. We knew what to go for and to ensure that it was all protected so it should go into the Afghan judicial system. That, to me, is the fight of today and the fight of tomorrow, and we need to understand the synergy that comes from the all-inclusive intelligence side of the United States and, quite honestly, the world community that will be brought to bear as we face these non-state actors. We also turn around and we're able to grab those lessons learned and share them and to look at where they're going to go for the next fight. So at the end of the day, we came so much better because there were people, uh, and, and I must mention uh, NGA, because they took their Warrior View product that really gave us that um, exquisite detail on the objective, and we could turn around and break it down and look at uh, what it would take when you were going to go into a target area how thick was a wall, where were you going to go, where were the windows, where were the locations. And with the appropriate protocols, this nation got access to everything. This other nation only got access to the printed data, not the data that could be manipulated on a computer. This other nation didn't even get access to that data on paper. We had to brief it up on a wall before they went on. But it was all done as we looked towards the ongoing fight. But I've got to tell you, it should be looked towards the future. We can't afford to do what the United States does post-named operation, post-event, post-war, and throttle back. We can't afford to break down those relationships because it takes time for that trust to be built. We cannot afford to lose that insight that comes from people working within an interagency support team and knowing and understanding that when you show up, 
it may be not so much what I bring to the fight, but what I understand those folks need, whoever those folks are, and take it back. Or it may be where you turn around and say, I can't use this data, but I can certainly provide it to a database where appropriate law enforcement agencies can get after these threats we face. So thanks. I look forward to further discussions. Jim. Yeah, thank you. Uh, very good, Frank. Enjoyed that a lot. Well, uh, good morning. I, it, it's uh, really my pleasure and my honor to be here today, too, with all the, uh, this distinguished group that the Clements Center and the Strauss Center has, has put together, Admiral McConnell and Steve Hadley and Admiral Inman and David Shedd and a whole bunch of other great Americans that are here. At the outset, I need to tell you, I'm a little bit sensitive about using my wife's pink glasses this morning. But <laughs> mine have become, become inoperable, so I need to put that out there so I don't have to worry about it during the whole thing. So. Um, you thought you were just stylish. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So let, let me start by just a little bit of history here. Uh, you know, some 50 years ago, historians tell us that one of our greatest intelligence successes was the analytics and the prediction that the intelligence community did on uh, predicting the 1967 Six-Day War in the Middle East. And in spite of that, some six years later, in 1973, uh, historians will tell us that we committed one of our largest blunders by not seeing and failing to see uh, Egyptian and Syrian forces building up their, their, their forces in the attack that they launched in the Golan Heights and in the Sinai, uh, in, in, as I said, in 1973. And I, I mentioned this for really two reasons. One is to underscore the point that many much more capable than, capable than me uh, earlier today have, have, have said it, but it needs to continue to be said. Really good intelligence work is just really hard to do. And we tend to lose sight of that basic fact. Policymakers lose sight of it. American public loses sight of it. Intelligence work is really hard, and it's not always, and it's not predictive of the future. It's just good intelligence work. And the second reason I would mention it would be to give me a license to go into, as General Clapper said, a little bit of geezer history. Mine's, mine's many geezer history, uh, but it's relevant, I think, to the uh, new intelligence and terrorism law, and I, and I, and I, and I, w I would like to walk, through with it, walk you through it for a moment. You know, uh, after these events in 1973, uh, uh, a crude oil embargo was uh, placed on the United States by the oil-producing states, and, uh, and that really gave birth to OPEC. I mean, that's when, that's when OPEC really... Uh, uh, developed its teeth. Uh, and though not many here will remember, but in 1973 we had gasoline lines and we had shortage of crude oil and petroleum products and it took a long time to do anything. And I was a very young lawyer in Washington, D.C. at the time doing what I thought, like any young Texas boy would do, is uh, go to Washington, get a couple years experience and then come back and begin your real life. Uh, and uh, so I was working at a little known agency called the Cost of Living Council. And the U.S. government reaction to the crude oil embargo of 1973, uh, and indeed most any calamity that's happened really since 1947, uh, is that we, uh, and it's exactly what happened after 9-11, uh, uh, after some catastrophic international event, we generally, our government recalibrates itself, the Congress passes a law or two, uh, government reorganizes itself, and we end up with one or two or three new layers of government. So in 1973, what this meant for me 
is that agencies and parts of agencies were merged, uh, and in a few short months, I was in the middle of a massive effort to impose a broad-based plan of price and allocation rules across the entire U.S. economy on, on crude oil and petroleum products. I might add, my, as I look back on those years, I think this was the worst government program that's ever been put in place, bar none. Uh, but others could disagree with that. Others could disagree with that. My little cost of living council soon became the Federal Energy Office at the White House, which soon became the Federal Administration, Federal Energy Administration. And by 1977, the, this entity was the big Department of Energy. And during those three years, we had a half a dozen different directors, administrators, and ultimately secretaries, and we were in a dozen different office spaces, and we moved all the time. Uh, so today, the Department of Energy has some 16,000 employees, and I'm still not sure what the Department of Energy does. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that's kind of a perspective on... on uh, on how government reacts to things. I've been in Washington now a long time. I never came back to Texas, so my short stint turned out to be a, a, a lifetime. But just to complete this circle, 30 years later after these days, and following this obviously a very different kind of crisis than the energy crisis of 1970, I'm talking about now 9-11, I found myself again on the inside. And only this time, it was as a member of the President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board. It's kind of a mouthful. And... In the trade, it's referred to as a PIFIAB, President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board. Now they've changed the name of it, taking out the word intelligence for reasons, I mean, foreign, for reasons we'll get to in a moment. President Bush appointed me to this board in, in November 2001, and as you might imagine, this was a pretty historic time to spend four or five years uh, uh, on this board. I would offer one word of caution in regard to the intelligence community. You know, you're either in or out, and if you're out, First-hand information is in pretty short supply. So one needs to have this perspective in mind when commenting from the outside about what's going on on the inside, and so hopefully I will do that today. But as I was getting ready for this panel, I began pulling a bunch of old information from that time uh, era, 2001, 2002, 2003, that time frame together, kind of a chronological order of events and my impressions of in order to sort of to crystallize my thoughts. And then as I began thinking about it, I said to myself, you know, I'm making the very same mistake that our intelligence services have made in years past, accumulating data, facts, and failing to ask the questions, what, what does all this stuff really mean, and where does it lead us? Well, let me give you a little bit of background. I'm pretty sure I don't have the answer, but I can give you a little bit of background. I had an extraordinary experience on the board for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, General Scrocroft was the chairman. I'd known General, the General, before either he went on the, on the board or, or before I did. Great friend of mine, great American, uh, great guy. And uh, so having him be chairman in the time that I was there, for most of the time that I was there, uh, was, was really an opportunity. Uh, the other opportunity for me was that I was perhaps the only other member of the board uh, that lived in Washington, D.C. Uh, other board members lived across the country. So this gave me a lot of opportunities that others didn't have. So I had the opportunity to visit, I think, every single component of the intelligence community during the ensuing three or four years. I had the opportunity to be read into a number of highly classified programs. And I had the opportunity 
to take a number of classified courses at Langley, and later I had the responsibility to come back to the full board and report on the subjects covered. So in, in the process of doing this, it, it became apparent to me that many in the intelligence community understood well their area, but most did not have that much of an understanding as to what other parts of the intelligence community did. And when I began to understand that, I, I came to realize just how unique my experience was because I had, I had the ability to get into the community in any way and at any time that we decided we wanted to. And it was a very enlightening experience. And I'll have more about that on a minute, in a minute. I, I also should acknowledge that uh, Dr. Phil Zelico, who I worked with on the PIPIAB uh, up until the end of 2002, when he left to become the staff director of the 9-11 Commission, uh, published a piece recently in, in a CIA publication known as Studies in Intelligence. And I would recommend that to you uh, as he relates the time frame, the history between 2002 and 2004, the first 2000, well, 2002 to the end of, to the beginning of 2003, and then 2003 to 2004, being on the 9-11 Commission. So, uh, and, and it's really, it's very, very interesting in, 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 in the sense of what Philip took with him from his experience at PIFIAB and brought over to the 9-11 Commission. And in particular, and we talk more about this, is, uh, is the National Counterterrorism Center concept, which our board was, uh, was very taken with and we spent a lot of time on. Um, I would also point you, well, after, after the uh, Intelligence Reform Terrorism Prevention Act became law in December 2004, it was, as everybody knows, a very historic uh, piece of legislation. But it's kind of interesting. You know, every historic piece of legislation, particularly in the intelligence and defense area, is enacted immediately after some calamity, okay, and in a rush and in a hurry. And yet, uh, it's rare that the Congress takes the time uh, in, a, in a calmer period of time to go back and look at the law uh, and say, you know, really, what worked here, what didn't work here, because the political imperative that was occasioned by the calamity is no longer there, and there's other day-to-day -day calamities to deal with. So how, do we, how did we make this law work? And I think there are a couple of reasons, uh, uh, a couple of ways. I want to I point to two. First of all, um, uh, if you look at the history of, of, of the energy crisis in the early 70s and the, and, and the laws created after 9-11, you know, there are some common threads that would run between that, between uh, the creation of, of Homeland Security and the creation of the uh, ODNI, but there's a big difference. My own view is that, that Homeland Security today is much like the same kind of disaster that Department of Energy was in its early days. It has a long way to go. But I think the intelligence community, I mean, I have great admiration for the intelligence community and its resilience. And uh, I was saying earlier, uh, in all those visits uh, to various components of the, of the community, I don't ever recall meeting a bureaucrat. I met, I met professionals, professionals that were dedicated to their job, professionals that got up each day thinking about how they were going to do their job. And when they came to see us at the board, we didn't always agree with, with, with their positions, but you never could question their, their, 
desire to do the right thing. And uh, so I think immediately after 9-11, I mean, everybody's talking about we need to, you know, deal with the stovepipes and all that, and we need to have integration, and it's got to be vertical and horizontal integration. The community began to do that without, without having a law written to require them to do that. But I also have to point out one other actor in this, in this play that I think was hugely important, and I, I, I give this credit to Steve Hadley. Uh, and, and Steve Stick writes a great article about it. Steve and I have forgotten where it was published. but on the, Also in Studies and Intelligence. Okay, so yeah. This is on uh, uh, Executive Order 12333, and so it's sort of an archaic part of, you know, national defense stuff. That executive order had existed uh, unchanged almost for some, what, 30 years? Uh, just short of 20. Just 26. short of 26 years. Mm -hmm. And so you would never read a word about this in the paper anywhere, but Steve and his team set about, I believe in 2008, to amend 12333. And if you want to understand what the bureaucratic fights are in government, uh, that in the intelligence community, go read Steve's piece and then reverse engineer it in terms of who was raising what problems that Steve had to broker solutions to. And you'll get a good sense of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of what the battles were within the U.S. government at large uh, 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 as this new law was taking effect and how to resolve it and how to go forward. So the ambiguities that get solved by an executive order such as this, a reasonable person might think ambiguities go to here, but for practical purposes, the ambiguity, ambiguities go to here. And, 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 and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think this, is, this, this executive order has been amended since then, has it? It has not been changed, no. Yeah. So uh, very interesting tribute to uh, Steve Hadley and the work he did. Um, and uh, so later on, if we, if we, if we have an opportunity, uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the issues that uh, General Clapper raised about the domestic and foreign divide, which was huge before 9-11 both in terms of our institutions and in terms of our laws. Immediately after 9-11, uh, people realized that there wasn't such a divide. Maybe in, and still, there, still there was in terms of the institutions and the laws, but the, there was no longer in intelligence circles a divide between foreign and domestic intelligence. And uh, we can also talk a little bit about a more in the questions and answers, the uh, National Counterterrorism Center, which I think uh, – I would give some credit uh, uh, to Larry Kinsvader, uh, who wrote a lot about this subject long before this came to reality, and it was very influential at the PIFIAB board as we looked at it. And I also would give some credit to NYPD Chief Ray Kelly. Uh, General Skrokoff and I went up to visit with him, sat through a couple sessions of this ComSat proceeding that they've got up there in terms of how to how to integrate information and how to be accountable from a management perspective. It was an unbelievable kind of a demonstration. There's a lot written about ComSat as well. Um, so uh, those are my thoughts for the moment. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, panel. Um, we have a lot to, to think about and talk about here. Um, I'm going to exercise my prerogative to ask a question and make a, make a, a quick comment first that as an intelligence professional and now a, a teacher trying to explain intelligence to uh, bright minds who, are, who ask good questions, I just want to point out that uh, the, the theme that I'm hearing, a theme I'm hearing is it's almost an apology that we have some of us to, about kind of going into the details. We certainly don't have time to, to take up all the details. But in terms of making reform work and performing well, going to a variety of points that have been made about leadership, about relationships, 
and about showing up every day, as General, as, as General Clapper said, and, and doing the work of the intel community, I wanted to point to a couple of things that have come out today just to, just to kind of tee up a couple of questions. But I'm going to pick on one. You, you mentioned Frank Bices, which, you know, might seem like a very obscure thing. This is a, a database that we use with NATO allies. Well, here at the University of Texas, we have big debates about foreign policy and, you know, should the U.S. be in the lead? Should we own problems? Should we have restraint? Well, it turns out that something like Bices ends up being a pretty important little piece of uh, gear if you don't want to be the one fighting the battle. There's a whole series of, of things sort of down in the weeds that have to be done to make reform work, to make integration work. One you mentioned that I loved was the logistics slice or the support slice to be able to go small. You know, we know how to go big. Do we know how to go small? Actually, the agency knows a little bit about that, and, and you know, we work together on those things. But the, the, um, the big macro legislation doesn't get it done. It's a lot of these other things that and attitudes that get it done. And with that in mind, I'd like to ask a question on the DOD side, and that is the, um, you know, Admiral McCraven was asked a question last night about can we go backwards, you know, can we, can we retrogress here? And one of the things I think I heard him saying it was, you know, I'm going to put words in his mouth, it's sort of like it's kind of in our DNA now. You know, we might slip on some things, and there's some places we haven't handed the lessons off to maybe in the bigger uh, defense department, but um, this is the way special operators um, in particular think now, and what I mean by thinking is sort of intelligence-driven operations and fused intelligence, and not just all source at the top, but combined at the bottom. And I wanted to get your comments on sort of two things. One, what more should we do to spread those lessons? And two, if those lessons were fully embraced, what would that mean for the IC? You know, what, what would that actually mean for us? I'll start with you, Frank, and then maybe go to Stephen and anybody else that wants to comment. Um, I, I would tell you, and it's all – it's not about bumper stickers, but here's a bumper sticker for you. Um, we've talked about uh, operations-based intelligence and now intelligence-based operations, and they're not really separated. There's a loop that uh, goes in there, um, and it's critical that we understand that when you're taking down a network – You've got to focus on nodes and then where that node will take you and what information you can find to go to the next node, to the next node, to the next node. And, in fact, you have got to be willing to execute an operation solely based on the intelligence that you want to gather from that objective, and that's in terms of people and stuff that will be there, um, and then to find out where that's going to lead you. And it may be small or, or it may be huge. You're probably not going to have those jackpots that's probably a wrong term because that's used for a lot of things. You're not going to have that, that plethora of information um, at every single objective, but you've got to take the time and you've got to be willing to go in. And now how do you exploit it? Who's going to look at it? I, I get to tell you that when we deal with threats of today, people put as much data on a uh, flash drive as every single one of us here. So it doesn't matter that it's a dusty hut someplace. It's got that data. And so how do you go in and exploit it? And how fast can you exploit it to jump to that next objective? Because ultimately somebody's going to say, gosh, this person was rolled up, and what does it mean for us? So you've got to have that speed. And that comes both in terms of technical means to be able to take a look at that data. But most importantly, it's that human side that's going to look at it and be able Gosh, and now General Clapper said he couldn't say connect the dots, but to be able to connect the dots and, and to go on to that next objective. Um, 
Well, most importantly, I think it goes back to that willingness of uh, operational commanders to recognize that you've got to execute an operation for the purposes of gathering intelligence and not wait for intelligence to go execute an operation. The intel rarely walks through the door for you. Uh, that's, that's a rare thing. Um, going backwards, it, it's uh, entirely possible to go backwards. A lack of attention, um, a lack of commitment, uh, a lack of leadership, um, and, and things can go backwards um, because we've seen it happen. Um, now, do, have we heard over the last day and a half or the, the day we've been here um, that we have the focus and the leadership? I think we do. Um, and so the likelihood that we're going to go backwards is very small. Um, but it's going to take time and attention and training and commitment from the people who are doing it. The issue, it seems to me, that, that we are going to have to confront is, is you know, to, to your point about details, how are we going to fashion the, the organizations that are actually going to do the work? Right? Not, not the headquarters. That's, that's a hard problem, and we need to work on it. But the, but the ones that are going to do the work out there are going to need a different kind of support than they have had in the past when events moved more predictably once they were in train. We now have a set of circumstances where events go in train rapidly. They move off in multiple directions at the same time. The teams that are dealing with them are, are having to gather information from different places. It has to be distilled, presented, made use of. We're, we haven't yet turned that corner. Okay, so, so it is almost as if, and, and I, you know, if, you, if you draw analogies as a function of time, the current arrangement for the special forces and the intelligence community is, is like yesterday's set-piece battle. Right? We, we know what we need to do for those kinds of things we've been fighting the last 10 years. We, we, we've got to start thinking about what is that fight going to look like going forward in 10 years and begin, Jim was talking about it uh, earlier, getting people out for that cross-training, for the exercises, right? Um, so it's not just the headquarters units that need the, the, the bluing, uh, the, 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 that need to be made joint. It's the guys who are, and gals who are going to be out there on the front lines. And it includes, by the way, the State Department Treasury people and the Justice people. Any other comment? Okay, I want to um, open it to questions. Let's see, right here, the lady with her hand up. My name is Brenna Larkin. I'm an undergraduate student here at UT. Uh, in the years following 9-11, there was a huge hiring boom in the intelligence community. And my question is, how do you see this continuing into the future? Do you see it continuing to grow and boom, or do you see it sliding backwards into the hiring freezes that were present before 9-11. And then another question, what areas of the intelligence community, if any, do you think will see the most growth in the coming years? I'm going um, to take a stab at answering, but first I'm going to say I'm speaking for myself and not the CIA, which I probably should have said earlier. Um, but I actually asked that question recently of a couple of the recruiting teams that came, uh, came around you know, are we, are we ramping up? Are we going down? You know, what's our, what's our situation? At least for two large agencies, I was told that they're maintaining basically the same, that uh, sequestration is not 
um, hurt us too badly on our uh, on our the new blood that we're bringing in. I, I would ask John McLaughlin or others, David Shedd, to maybe comment on this. But um, I feel that in the panel, but I, I feel that there was a there was a great deal of this hollowing out that the director uh, of national intelligence was talking about today that actually happened. Uh, before 9/11, and we were keenly aware that it happened, and it was—it's directly related to, to to the events, in my opinion. So I think there's a there's still a, a memory of not letting that happen, uh, but it's difficult, and and people are your most expensive thing. But let me ask the panel to comment if they want, and then maybe if one of the uh, uh, other senior leaders want to comment on that. I just start with the same disclaimer. I speak with no authority for my former employer, uh, the CIA, but I would direct people's attention to the 9-11 Commission report where this was addressed extensively, and particularly in the human intelligence area. Uh, there was a period while we were reaping the peace dividend that was described earlier uh, where there were literally, and this is documented in the, in the Commission's report, uh, less than a dozen uh, young operations officers being trained uh, by CIA to be deployed overseas to recruit and handle spies. And, and that was absolutely extraordinary, in particular because so many of them were even internal, so they hadn't even been brought in from the outside. So hiring in, in my chosen profession at the CIA had, had literally stopped uh, for a period of half a year or a year or more. And uh, as Paul indicated, that lesson has been learned. And despite the fact that money is going to be a little bit more scarce going forward, as the director has described, uh, the people I know that are involved in uh, planning and executing recruitment strategies in the intelligence community are uh, absolutely seeking to avoid those demographic uh, cycles and shifts to ensure that uh, we have strong officers uh, available for the day when we're going to need them in the future. And, again, when David Shedd comes back up on the stage, you can ask him about DIA. Uh, were I making career choices uh, at this point with an interest towards working in the intelligence community, uh, I'd spend a lot of time in the computer science department. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, uh, it, there's always going to be a need for, you know, lawyers and accountants and medicine men uh, and foreign linguists. But uh, the fact of the matter is uh, I know a few secrets in the world today Literally, it, the answer may be none uh, that are not available in digital form, zeros and ones, uh, in somebody's computer. And, and, and I as think Frank said, even on you know, even with semi-literate adversaries, um, they're carrying <laughs> electronic instruments with, uh, that have to be exploited. So I, I would out, <clears throat> I would uh, list that as a growth area for you. Yeah. And I just add one small thought to this. Uh, in, in the days following 9-11, as I was visiting various places in the community, and specifically NSA, and you recall that uh, as we were reaping the peace dividend in the late 1990s and we had the, sort of the financial crisis at NSA, uh, the leadership there, I mean, enthusiastic would not be the right word, but the, but the, 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 the praise that was coming from them about the recent people that they had hired, 19... 99, 2000, coming out of the financial crisis from high-tech companies around the country. He said, you know, we, we have never experienced talent of this level coming into NSA as, was, as has come in in recent years. And then you put on top of that what General Clapper was saying, that 60 percent of the, of the hires in the intelligence community at the present time are since 9-11. So, um, it's a it's a young young person's business, and uh, like I say, it's uh, uh, 
computer sciences is a big part of it. I just want to add one thing. I'm going to, I'm going to sanitize it a little bit. But uh, the commitment of these seniors, you saw one of them, uh, his commitment last night talking about the young people, it's, it really can't exaggerate. I'm actually amazed by the directors of the various agencies. And I'm just going to give one anecdote that Dave would be very familiar with. And that is um, I was in charge of tradecraft and training for the National Clandestine Service in my last job. And when we had our graduation for our officers and the military officers and other agency officers that we were training, literally the heads of most of the agencies associated with that came to that graduation, which was on an off-site. They traveled to it. At the last one that I attended, which was uh, this last summer, our director was there, director FBI was there, David, I think you were there, uh, director Clapper's been there. Uh, he said to me last night, I, you know, I'd like to go back again. So the commitment to the young people and the recognition that that's our lifeblood, I, I, you just can't, uh, you can't exaggerate it. Another question, yes ma'am. Hi, my name is Sarah Kaiser-Cross. Um, I'm a graduate student here for Middle Eastern Studies and Global Policy. And my question relates to national security, which is often a rather nebulous concept that's thrown around. So I was wondering if each of you could speak to what specifically, uh, which components you think uh, national security embraces, and whether or not you think national security is kind of an evolutionary or an evolving concept, or rather it's consistent with the National Security Act back from 1946. And finally, uh, <laughs> whether or not um, a reevaluation of national, um, or the reform of national um, intelligence is necessarily uh, looking at national security. Anybody want to take that one? Well, First. look, historically you could say... Sounds like a piffy app thing to me. <laughs> national security, <laughs> national security, of course, uh, 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 changes over time. I mean, if you look at our 50 years of national, national security of 1950 to 1990, it was we had, we had a single target and we had a single mission, and it was the Soviet Union, and it changed... The, the good the, old it, days. And, and, and it, what did it say? I said the good old days. Yeah, the good old days. And, and, you know, changes took place by the millimeter over months and years and at a glacial pace. And, and then in early 1990s, we understood that there was a different threat, a terrorist threat. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, we had multidimensional threats coming from every place, and everything began to change. And so the way national security had to deal with that was, was very, very different than, than the way we had to deal with it when we only had one, one target out there. And so, I mean, I think this is the history of the National Counterterrorism Center. How do you... How do you structure sideways across, as, as General Clapper said, all the silos? Uh, and, and silos has become sort of not a very favorable term, but in this sense I mean it in a very favorable way because these centers of excellence do what no one else can do, but they've got to be mined laterally, you know, across the entire community to understand and to be able to analyze the threat. And so there's no better example of how national security has changed than that, and and where this terrorist threat goes, and, and and when we get into famines and floods and food and diseases, I mean those are those are issues of the of of, of, of decades ahead. So it's going to change a lot. It already has changed a lot. Other comments on that, <coughs> sir? Yeah, please. Just, just one thought. Um, 
National security is a concept, I believe, for the United States, is the uh, creation and defense of a liberal international order. Uh, trade, finance, travel, borders, sovereignty, right? All of those things that we have uh, defended because they're good for us, first and foremost, and we believe that creates an international order that is uh, one in, that is most congenial to us, and oh, by the way, it's probably good for others. That notion is, is under threat, and it's under threat for some of the reasons you, you just suggested, but it's also because there are other centers of power that are growing that don't share that view. So to the extent that we think about what the security of the country is, it starts from that, that I think, central principle and then works its way down to the eaches. But, but at its heart, I, I think that's what the security of the United States is from a national point of view. Mm-hmm. One more point, and I'll kind of poke a finger at myself. I find myself talking about non-state actors uh, an awful lot, and I, I do believe that if you look at the extremist organizations, terrorist organizations that threaten us, it is a huge threat. And, oh, by the way, those non-state actors then go out to other non-state actors. If you look at who travels on a network, uh, it's going to be drug runners. It's going to be people who are doing human trafficking. It's going to be gun runners. It's going to be terrorists. And it is a concern. But quite honestly, the landscape, as we've talked about, has changed. There are so many other non-state actors. We are now a global world, global economy. And if you look at the number of businesses that are no longer in the United States, that are elsewhere, the security, national security of the United States has always been about the borders, but it's been about the people, the citizens. So we have got a more complex world out there, greater responsibility And I think those uh, who are looking at those threats find themselves um, having to report on and track significantly more uh, bits and pieces of information because of the globalized nature. So it's become more complex, which is is what you said, and that's kind of an understatement, I think. Sir, just one more thing about that. I'd I'd like to point out that, you know, when you're – Looking for a neat definition, and I don't think anybody's going to try to go back to the 46 thing and do the comparison, but a point I would make is we've talked about, you used the term whole of government earlier, and sometimes we, we sort of have to define something as national security to get that whole of government, or maybe, maybe we feel that we do because my funds were allocated for national security purposes. And I want to give you a very specific and I think relevant example. Russ Porter's here from the office of DNI, and when, when I was there, we ran some war games some little exercises to get a whole-of-government approach on some sort of off problems. And one problem we ran was a biological use of, I mean, a terrorist use of biological agents. And what we found in that was that the intel people were way too slow to reach into places like CDC for expertise. And it took much longer to do that with agility than it should have done. Later, and not really thinking about the first one, we ran a plague outbreak that CDC was managing and we found that they didn't know anything about tapping into the IC and were way too slow to do that. So whether you call it national security or smart, agile government, it's, it, you know, it's something we need to get better at. I think that's what we've been talking about. Yes, sir. Mike. Yeah. Uh, my question is, uh, well, again, uh, what's interesting is that um, the terrorist organizations now, uh, they, they read us fairly well. You know, once the Soviet Union dissolved and, 
you know, the FARC and ELN, et cetera, and these other terrorist organizations began to read how long it takes us to make decisions. And uh, General Clapper is saying that we can't be clairvoyant, but we can be intuitive. And uh, General Washington beat the British Army because he invented guerrilla warfare in, the, in this continent. Um, so my question is, um, what do you think we could do to streamline and attract more of these uh, young students into the intel community who have great intuitive skills to sort of beat these terrorist organizations at their own game and help predict better so we can more quickly respond? Is the question, what do we do to attract them, or how do we use them when we get them? Anybody want to take a crack at that? Well, I mean, look, I mean, I'm, I'm not the expert on this, but I heard General Clapper yesterday say that I think it was at NCTC they had, what, 6,000 applicants for 34 jobs? I mean, uh, somebody's doing some pretty good outreach to attract that level of attention. And I promise you those, those young kids that applied were smart, bright people. And I can doubly promise you whoever NCTC hired – was 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 good, and uh, so I think I think there's a lot of there's a big effort to attract youth into the community. Anybody else? I would just uh, refer you to uh, two areas where I've seen particularly nimble counterterrorism uh, performance, and the first has been mentioned several times before. That's the National Counterterrorism Center. You'll have Matt Olson up here later today or tomorrow to talk to you about that. Uh, that's instantaneous. Uh, when threats are reported from overseas or domestically by any agency, that's the point of the center. All the information comes together at a watch office. It's immediately evaluated, responded to, and uh, reported up the chain in a threat warning uh, manner. And then if there's appropriate planning to mitigate that threat that needs to happen, it happens almost instantaneously. There's no other intelligence organization or country in the history of the world uh, frankly, that's ever been able to gather, process, evaluate, and act on information as quickly as the United States does today. Uh, another example from the battlefield was something that uh, Admiral McRaven referred to yesterday, and that was the, the absolutely you know, stunning and heroic work that happened in western and northern Iraq uh, during the height of our effort to degrade the Zarqawi network. Uh, we have an expert here who can comment in greater detail than I can, but I've witnessed it. It's astounding. It's 24 hours. It's a cycle of darkness. It's collecting information, evaluating it, and going out the next time the sun goes down uh, to find the people you learned about yesterday. And, and that's how we defeated terrorists there, and that's how we do it today uh, in Afghanistan. So I think there's, there's a great deal to be um, uh, not, not overly satisfied and complacent about, but there's a great deal to be proud of uh, in how nimble and agile we are at countering terrorist threats. Okay, well, that's the intersection between intelligence and the policy community, right. where it's handed, handed off to the, uh, the National Security Council, and on an interagency basis, we choose to respond as a government. And Steve Hadley at lunch can tell you whether he thinks we do that quickly and agilely enough. Yeah, that interface is critical, and I think it gets down to relationships, credibility, integrity, leadership, some other things that we've talked about here. I think we have time for one more question. Uh, 
Okay, Adam Lemon, did you have one? Okay, in the back there we have one. I'm uh, Gus Gonzalez, former student. Um, disruption seems to be the order of the day. You know, we just have to look at the news to see that. Um, getting to your point about agility and how do we make our people more agile. Um, our adversaries obviously eat, sleep, and breathe agility every single day. You know, that, that's just where they come out of. We don't. We have our nice, comfortable bubble, thank goodness, where we uh, occupy the space. It seems that the people who are close to the action, clandestine service, military forces, first responders, they deal with disruption on a daily basis. Once you get those levels above that, people in cubicles, people, policymakers, that sort of thing, if they've never actually been to where, you know, it hits the fan, they don't know what exactly to do, what that adrenaline rush feels like, they're going to make bad policy decisions, they're going to make bad recommendations, or not make timely decisions. I think the intelligence community could uh, stand to develop its people and train them. I know there's drills, I know there's things that you put people through, but there doesn't quite seem to be enough of that. I was wondering if you could speak to that, in a, especially once you get away from the operational side, once you get more people who occupy buildings and cubicles and that sort of thing. Anybody have Well, I mean, j jump in. I, I think that um, uh, one of the points you made is that absolutely there has to be an investment uh, in education and training. Um, in the vernacular I'm used to, a lesson observed is worthless until it's a lesson learned. So when we turn around and we have a center for a lesson learned, it's not going to do us any good if it's uh, only observed and captured. Um, my experience has been that across the board, leadership recognizes the importance of capturing those lessons, uh, sharing them, uh, and exploiting the data that they have, both internal to their own organization and external. And that's that's always a little bit of a challenge because nobody wants to air dirty laundry and invariably a lesson. I'll say most experience uh, or, or good judgment comes from experience and most experience comes from bad judgment. And so, I mean, that's what a lesson learned is. But there's a recognition that, that in the fight, you can't afford to let somebody else experience that same challenge to go through that same threat to perhaps lose our life because you didn't share. So I think that we are far better at it. We've broken down uh, tremendous barriers to sharing, and that's both internal to the United States. That's across interagency, across all of the secretariats, um, and then also external because I, I know that we're sharing a lot of those lessons learned with uh, our allies and partners. So, so let me give a, uh, a broader answer and go back to the uh, National Security Act in 1947, uh, amended however many times. Uh, if you go back and read the original, uh, there were two, I believe, two assistant secretaries and a secretary. And one of those assistant secretaries was responsible for industrial mobilization. That was the job of one of the two. I can't remember what the other guy did. Um, the point I'm making is we built a security apparatus and, um, and honed it over a long period of time that was designed not to react violently in the moment, uh, but to be steady, purposeful, and if it had to act, right, it, it did so in a deterrent environment and it did so inside of 30 minutes. And we geared that thing to make sure we never got to those 30 minutes. And so that meant you had to be very, very careful about how you handled things, very deliberate in what you did. The military was built for industrial age warfare. Right? Since 9-11, uh, we have been trying to work our way around um, that 
uh, apparatus and trying to instill into it more of that speed of decision-making that we know we confront in the world we're in without at the same time um, uh, igniting uh, the very kinds of events that we don't want to see. So, that, so that's a new tension that's in the system. So the challenge we have going forward, and, and it's what the people you're talking about as students today and the younger folks who have been uh, out in the field uh, and have felt that adrenaline rush, they need to start stepping back and asking, okay, we redid the intelligence business, better or worse, but what about the rest of it? <laughs> Right? I mean, is the Department of Defense forever supposed to look like it does? Uh, Homeland Security? Probably not. What about the rest of that apparatus? And what is going to be the replacement in terms of processes and, and responsibilities, authorities, uh, inside the federal apparatus to deal with what is now a very different uh, security environment than we faced in 1947? Well, this brings us to the end of our time. I just, in responding to this last question, would, would say that, you know, again, going down the details, I think, and, and kind of being a broken record on leadership, um, it's a, uh, uh, you know, in the National Condescent Service, for example, to be very specific, uh, we make sure the guy in the cubicle of the tall building has been in the war zone. Um, we literally have a policy that you've got to do that to be promoted. And those kinds of details, so we never break trust between the people on the front end the warfighter, whoever, and, and the people that are supporting them in making decisions. And, and sometimes I, I agree with you. I don't want them making a rush decision. I want them to consider this very carefully. I think this conversation, gentlemen, has pointed us to a lot of very positive things that we can continue to, to talk about and think about. And I just want to echo something Steve Slick said a minute ago about optimism. I'm very optimistic, optimistic. and we do have thousands of smart people applying. And as, as General Clapper emphasized twice, the people running operations today, doing analysis, collecting SIGINT, were mostly hired after 9-11. And they are very smart, and they are going to demand that we get it right. Yep. So with that, um, I believe we are going to break from here for lunch. It's about 12.15. Uh, that's going to start at 12.45. It takes a few minutes to get out of there and a few minutes to get over there. Uh, and so you might want to start making your way fairly soon to the AT&T Center. Yeah, to the AT&T Center. <laughs>